Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Today we're asking the question, when does rail transit make sense? And so we're all on the same page. The Cato Institute's mission is to increase the understanding of public policies based on the principles of limited government, free markets, individual liberty, and peace. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about some events we'll be having on Capitol Hill coming up. Next Friday at 1 o'clock, Cato scholar Neil McCluskey and Utah Congressman Rob Bishop, a longtime high school teacher, will be discussing national education standards and federalism next door in B340. And the following Friday, April 23rd, Cato's Jim Harper and Chris Calabrese from the ACLU will discuss whether immigration reform should include a national ID. We're also planning events on counterterrorism, electronic privacy, Haiti, and the struggle to limit government, just to give you a sample. But we don't have firm dates on any of those yet. So keep checking Cato.org for more information, or you can see me or Brandon Arnold for more information. Um, it's a real pleasure to introduce our speakers today, Randall O'Toole with the Cato Institute and Ron Utt from the Heritage Foundation, both of whom have been strong advocates for policies that reflect a deep understanding of economic and social reality. And after they explain their views on these issues, we'll have plenty of time for questions, so I hope you'll be thinking of things to ask them. First up, we have Randall O'Toole. He is a Cato, Cato Institute senior fellow working on urban growth, public lands, and transportation issues. His analysis of urban land use and transportation issues brought together in his 2001 book, The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, has influenced decisions in cities across the country. In his second most recent book, <clears throat> excuse me, in his second most recent book, The Best Laid Plans, Randall calls for repealing state, local, and federal planning laws and proposes reforms that can help solve social and environmental problems without heavy-handed government regulation. And his newest book, Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It, was published earlier this year. It offers a thorough analysis of personal mobility, including how not and how best to achieve it, and calls for transportation policy that reflects the desires of individuals rather than those of planners. Randall's also the author of numerous Cato papers, has written articles for Regulation Magazine and op-eds and articles for numerous other national journals and newspapers. He also maintains the excellent daily blog, The Anti-Planner, and if you Google The Anti-Planner, it'll be the first thing that pops up. An Oregon native and resident, Randall was educated in forestry at Oregon State University and in economics at the University of Oregon. Randall O'Toole. All right, thank you. Well, I left my remote control at home, so I'm going to stand here to uh, give my uh, PowerPoint show. I'm sorry our screen is so small, but I live or die with, with PowerPoint. So, and In fact, I don't even use PowerPoint. I use Keynote. I use the Apple version of PowerPoint. So I hope you can see the screen. Um, I'm, we're largely going to show you some pictures and charts about rail transit. I first want to tell you the story of the Champlain Flyer, which was started in 2002 in Vermont, outside of Burlington. It was a commuter train, and uh, the state funded it on the condition <coughs> that the uh, state government monitor how well it works. And after a year, they found out that it didn't take enough cars off the road to relieve any congestion. The few cars that it did take off the road emitted less pollution than the diesel locomotives that powered the train, and so it was an environmental disaster, and so they canceled it. They were very lucky that they did not take any federal funding, because if they had taken federal funding and they had canceled the train, 
would have been required to give the money back. And since there isn't much of a, there, there's sort of a market for diesel locomotives and passenger cars, so there isn't much of a market for other infrastructure like train stations and uh, tracks and things like that, and so uh, they wouldn't have been able to afford to give the money back. So in, in a lot of cases, transit agencies are forced to claim that transit, rail transit projects are a success because if they're a failure, they'll have to tell taxpayers, hey, well, it failed, but you have to keep subsidizing it for the next 30 years anyway because we can't afford to give the money back to the U.S. government. Let me give you a few examples of that. This is a commuter train in Seattle. It's called the Sounder. Uh, it cost over a billion dollars to start up. Uh, the annualized capital cost is almost $100 million. Annual operating cost is uh, $30 million, of which fares only cover about a fourth. And so the net annual operating cost is $121 million. <clears throat> That's the net subsidy. It carries about 9,000 people a day, but since it's a commuter train, they all go round trip, which means a 4,500 round trips. That means each round trip rider, the subsidy is equal to $26,900 per year. In other words, we could buy everybody who rides that train a new Toyota Prius every year for the next 30 years. Here's uh, one in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. It was started uh, in 2006. It claims to be the most cost-effective uh, commuter train in the country. Well, how do they define cost-effectiveness? Well, they mean they didn't put up a lot of capital cost. Uh, but in order to be cost-effective, you have to get something out of it. Here's the train on a typical day. It's practically empty. The capital cost was only $42 million, as opposed to over a billion for the Seattle train, but still, they only carry 250 round trips a day, so the cost per round trip rider, annual cost, is $27,000, even more than the cost of the Seattle train. And then there's Portland. Portland started a commuter train in 2008. Uh, they spent $160 million. Again, they only carry 575 round trips a day. The annualized cost of this is per rider is over $30,000. You can give somebody a top-of-the-line Prius for that, uh, not just an ordinary Prius. So what we have are incredible failures, and yet the transit agencies are claiming them as successes. Nashville, in particular, is trying to spin the success of its first train to get funding to do six more commuter trains. Louisville and Indianapolis are both saying, Nashville has a successful commuter train. We need to have a successful one, too. And yet, in, by any objective measure, it's an utter and miserable failure. <clears throat> I once talked to a rail transit advocate, and I said, what is your definition of success? Uh, when do you decide that a rail transit line is successful? And he said, if one person saves time getting to work, then it's a success. So it's okay, we can spend a trillion dollars and get one person to work a little bit faster, five minutes a day, that's a success. I don't think that's a good measure of success. We need to have a line that says, this is a successful rail transit system and this is a failure. So I decided to explore where that line would be. Well, the most obvious line is, is it profitable or not? Of course, no transit system in the country comes close to that line. This shows, and there's we have over 70 rail transit lines today. Uh, back in 1970, there were only about 15 rail transit lines in six cities in America. Now we have over 70 in 30 cities. Uh, this shows the 
percent of operating costs that are covered by fares. You can see one of them, uh, the New York subways, 67% of the operating costs are covered by fares. That's the closest we can come to a profitable line. It only covers two-thirds of the operating costs, none of the capital costs. All the others do a lot worse. If you roll in the capital costs and annualize them like a mortgage, then the fare recovery is a lot worse. The one that's most successful, I think, is San Francisco BART line. Um, oh, no. <laughs> No, the most successful one is the San Francisco cable car, uh, which covers 45% of its capital and operating costs. Uh, the BART line is uh, uh, a couple below that. But anyway, no, no system covers even half of its costs. The subsidies per rider, for a few of them, are, are in the dollars. But in the majority of cases, the subsidies per rider, in other words, every time somebody gets on board the train, the subsidy that taxpayers have to pay is more than $10. So if you take a round trip, if you get on the train and then you get off and change trains and get on another train, that's two trains. If you take a round trip with that trip, that's four trains a day. You're getting a $40 subsidy a day if it's $10 per ride, per trip. Now people will say, well, highways are subsidized too. Airlines are subsidized too. So of course we should subsidize transit and high-speed rail and things like that. Well, yes, highways are subsidies, subsidized, but the subsidies are very small. <coughs> Americans spend out of pocket 23 cents per passenger mile driving. That includes insurance, it includes taxes, it includes everything on the cost of your car. In addition to that, we do subsidize highways, mostly local, no federal subsidies, very few state subsidies, but cities and counties do subsidize highways out of uh, sales taxes, property taxes, and income taxes. That adds up to about a penny a passenger mile. You compare that with transit, on average, the subsidies are uh, about almost 70 cents a passenger mile. And the total cost is almost 90 cents, or a little bit more than 90 cents a passenger mile for transit on the average. Now, light rail, the cost is much, much higher, mainly because light rail has been built in cities where transit, where rail transit makes no sense at all, cities like Portland and Denver and places like that. Commuter rail and, high, and, and, and uh, heavy rail, subways and elevators, are not quite so bad, mainly because more than half of all commuter rail and heavy rail trips are in New York City, where uh, it is a little more cost efficient than in the rest of the country. But if you look at other places, we've already seen Seattle, Nashville and Portland, the commuter rail lines are very, very expensive and the subsidies are high. Okay, so no rail line passes a profitability test, but let's, let's, give, let's forget about that one. The rail people will say uh, every, every transit system in the world loses money, which isn't true. There are actually transit systems in America that make money, but let's forget that. Let's look at some other criteria. What happens to transit ridership when you build a rail line? We have built about 50 rail lines in this country in the past 40 years, and we can look and see what's happened before and after to transit ridership. This is the percentage of people who commute to work, and it shows that in four urban areas, the percentage of people who commute to work by transit grew by 1% to 2%. In four urban areas, it grew by a half to 1%, and in five urban areas, it grew by 0 to half a percent. On the other hand, in roughly an equal number of areas, it shrank by 0 to 1%, 1 to 
and two to five percent, and then in three areas, it actually shrank by more than five percent. In other words, transit lost market share in more urban areas than it gained market share after building rail transit. So rail transit is not a way of getting people out of their cars and onto transit. Transit loses market share in more cases than it gains market share. And if you look at the data closely, it turns out in several of those, those cities where transit gained market share, it only did so because the cities gave up on rail transit and decided to invest in buses, and uh, it was the bus transit market share that grew, not the rail transit. Uh, here's another measure. This is per capita ridership. How many trips per year do people take on transit? Has it grown since we built rail transit, or has it shrunk? Well, in the cities that have built rail transit, uh, it's grown in about half the cities, and it's shrunk in about half the cities, a little bit more than half the cities. So again, it's a hit or miss proposition. There's no guarantee that if you build rail transit that you're going to increase per capita transit ridership. Well, another argument for rail transit is that, okay, there's a high capital cost, but it'll save money because it's cheaper to operate than a bus. A light rail train can hold 500 people, a bus can hold 70 people, there's one driver for each one, so obviously it costs a lot less to have one driver for 500 people than one driver for 70 people. The problem with that argument is that you very rarely have a light rail train with 500 people on board. It's more likely to be about 50 people. Uh, for a heavy rail train like the Washington Metro, uh, it might be 150 people on the entire train on average over the course of a day. Sure, it's crowded at rush hour, but over the entire course of the day, the average number of people on a Washington <coughs> subway train is about 150. So that's about two bus loads. So the question is, um, do you save money running trains versus buses? And it turns out, operationally, uh, you do in a lot of cases. For example, San Francisco BART system saved almost five, this is in hundreds of millions of dollars, this is in millions of dollars. So the San Francisco BART system saved over $450 million by running trains as opposed to running buses along the same corridors. Uh, Washington Metro saved $350 million running trains instead of buses in the same corridors. But there are some that lost money. Uh, quite a few light rail and commuter rail trains actually lose money. The buses would be cheaper to operate than the trains, partly because the trains are so empty, it'd be just cheaper to run buses. Now, what if we include capital costs? Well, then the numbers become very different. In this case, there's only two or three systems that actually save money. That happens to be the Maryland commuter rail, Los Angeles commuter rail, and uh, San Jose commuter rail, and that's really about it. San Jose is really a break-even proposition. All these others, the capital <coughs> cost offsets any operational savings, if there is an operational savings, from uh, having the rail transit as opposed to buses. Well, what about a different test? I decided to look at the San Francisco cable cars. San Francisco cable cars are interesting because they're an ancient, outmoded form of travel, and there's a good reason for it. They're very expensive. We spend, on average, about $9 a mile running a bus, $9 a mile running a subway car, about $11 a mile running a commuter rail car, and about $13 a mile running a light rail car. Okay, those are all in the same ballpark, about $10 a mile. 
Cable cars cost $107 a mile to run. An enormously expensive system. That's why as soon as electric streetcars were invented, most cities scrapped their cable cars out and replaced them with streetcars. Washington, D.C. did that. Uh, Philadelphia, other cities had cable cars, replaced them with streetcars right away because they're so much cheaper to operate. So we have this enormously expensive system, plus the cars are small. As I mentioned, a bus, when you count both the seats and standing room, can hold about 70 people. A subway car, a light rail commuter car, can hold 150 people or more. A cable car can only hold 50 people because they're so small. So cable cars have these incredible disadvantages. So I said, okay, any rail system would be considered a failure if it cannot cover, recover the same amount of its operating cost uh, as a cable car, and if it cannot have as high a vehicle occupancy as a cable car. In other words, if it's only carrying 10 people, it doesn't matter if you've got a car that can hold 150 people. If it's only carrying 10 people, you might as well just use a bus. And if it can't attract as many people per day as cable cars, then I would consider it a failure. Now, it doesn't mean it's a success just because it can meet all these tests, but just looking at the fare recovery ratio, here's the cable cars, and uh, only about 20 systems beat the cable cars. All the rest of them don't even recover as a high percentage of their operating costs, even though cable cars cost 10 times as much to operate as anything else, they recover 47% of their operating costs, and no other and, and these other systems don't come close to that. You follow that? They aren't recovering as much of their operating costs as cable cars. Now you look at the other two tests, and it turns out there's only about a dozen systems that that can pass the cable car test that have high higher vehicle occupancies, uh, higher weekday ridership and higher fare recovery ratios. And you notice they're almost all older systems in Boston, New York, Philadelphia. Uh, there are a couple of new systems. There's a Los Angeles commuter rail system, San Diego light rail system, San Francisco BART, DC Metro. Uh, they're the only ones that pass the cable car test. In other words, they're in big cities. Medium-sized cities like Portland, uh, Sacramento, Denver, Seattle, nothing's ever going to pass the cable car test, so there's no point in investing in rail transit there. Well, then people say, well, we have to have rail transit because it spurs economic revival. Uh, the New York Times actually had an article about how new rail lines spur economic revival. They had three examples. Example number one was in Carrollton, Texas, where they built a light rail line from Dallas. What they didn't mention was the city spent $13 million building this parking garage and providing other infrastructure to get this shopping center built here. And then they credited the shopping center to the light rail. But if they hadn't spent the $13 million on infrastructure, including the parking garage, the shopping center wouldn't have been built there. So it was the parking garage, not the light rail, that led to the economic development. Example number two was in Denver. It's an area called Stapleton. It was a former... Uh, airport, and they opened it up to developers, and they gave them $300 million in subsidies to develop it. They plan to build a train there someday. They don't know when, probably 2017. So now they're saying the rail line spurred economic development. Well, the rail line isn't even going to be there for seven more years, but it was the $300 million in subsidies that spurred economic development. 
The third example of the New York Times of a rail line that spurred economic development was in Columbus, Ohio, where the city gave $800 million in subsidies to this area, it's called River South. There's no rail line now, now. there's never going to be a rail line, they have no plans for a rail line. So how the rail line spurred the economic development, it didn't, it was the $800 million, $800 million in subsidies. When you look at my hometown of Portland, Oregon, you see this. The, they claim they have development-oriented transit. They build the transit and they get all this development. Well, this is the development they got after they built the light rail line in 1986. Ten years later, nothing. The city planner went to the city council and said, we zoned everything along this for transit-oriented development. We got nothing, not a single development after ten years. And the city councilor said, we're in this hot real estate market. Portland housing prices doubled in the past five years. And, no, and yet we got all this vacant land along the light rail line. Obviously, we have to subsidize it. So they started giving property tax breaks, 10-year tax waivers to anybody who would build high-density housing. And then they used tax increment financing, which I like to say is stealing candy from children um, <clears throat> because it takes money from schools and, and other urban services. And they actually given $2 billion in subsidies to developers out of tax increment finance districts along light rail lines. Every single district is designed to be along a light rail line so that they can take money from the development and, and or from the property taxes and, and give it to the developers. Now this city councilor in 1996 said, the market's not going to lead to economic development after rail transit. But then he quit his job and went to work for a consulting firm, and he now travels around the country saying, Portland built rail, and we got all this economic development. He never mentions the subsidies that he himself convinced the city council to put into place. As I said, those subsidies take money from fire, police, schools, and all kinds of things. Research that's cited in, in my report, uh, published by the Federal Transit Administration, says rail transit does not lead to economic <coughs> development. It might shuffle it around a little bit, but it does not lead to economic development overall. It doesn't make your city grow faster. It doesn't re revive urban de uh, blighted areas. All it does is shuffle development around a little bit. <clears throat> now, when we built the interstate highway system, we gave the money to uh, the states based on a formula. And the states had an incentive to spend their money efficiently because they knew they were only going to get that much money. But in 1973, Congress said that if you have an interstate highway on the books that is planned and, and approved, but you decide to cancel it, you can spend that money instead on transit capital improvements. It was that law that led to the rail transit boom. Because cities said, cities like Portland and Sacramento and, and Chicago and, and Boston, and said, okay, we want, we want to cancel a freeway, we can spend the money on transit, but we can only spend it on capital improvements. If we buy a whole bunch of buses, then there's no play, we don't have any money to operate those buses. So we need to spend something that's going to cost a lot of capital without imposing a lot of operating costs on us. So they decided to start building rail transit because rail transit cost a lot of money and it didn't impose a high operating cost on them. So we ended up having this huge incentive to kickstart rail transit in city after city. Well, that law was repealed in 1982, but since then, over half of all federal transit grants have been dedicated exclusively to the cities that have rail transit. Well, in 1982, only about 10 cities had rail transit. Actually, it was seven cities had rail transit. So 
over half of all federal transit money goes to seven cities, and all the rest of the transit money is going to all the other cities, including the cities that already have rail transit. So this gives cities an incentive to build rail transit so that they can get more of that, get share of that larger pot of money. In addition, a lot of the federal money is in an open bucket. The New Stars Fund, the CMAQ Fund, and other funds are in an open bucket. They're not based on a formula. They're based on who comes in with the most expensive proposal gets the most money. If you come in with a cheap proposal, you won't get much money. You have to come in with a really expensive proposal to get the most money, and that's what cities have done. So all of these things have created huge incentives at the federal level for cities to build rail transit when rail transit makes no sense. And of course, these are all described in a lot more detail in my report, which I hope you all have. Uh, it was handed out in front. And uh, if you have any questions, I'll look forward to answering them after Ron has had a chance to talk. Thank you, Randall. Next up is Ronald Utt. He is the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Senior Research Fellow for the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Ron conducts research on housing, transportation, and the federal budget. He also specializes in the application of privatization, restructuring, decentralization, and devolution of government programs, and works in cooperation with scholars across the United States to evaluate the success and failure of policies for urban revitalization, land use, and growth management. Ron has had a long and distinguished career, so in brief, he served as director of the Housing Finance Division at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, as Senior Economist at OMB, Director of Economic Research at the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts, as Associate Chief Economist of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and led President Reagan's privatization efforts in 1987 and 1988. Ron then served as Heritage's Senior Fellow in Political Economy before being named Executive Vice President of the National Chamber Foundation at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce before returning to Heritage in 1994. Ron has also pursued a number of private business ventures, as well as serving as an economic and privatization consultant to government officials in countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union. Ron holds a doctorate in economics from Indiana University and a bachelor's degree in business administration from Penn State University. Dr. Utt. Uh, thanks, Kurt, for the introduction. And, and Randall, thank you for uh, inviting me to participate in the panel. It's always a, a pleasure to join up with you on some of these events. Uh, I, I want to add on to uh, additional information on the same theme that um, Randall did with his PowerPoint demonstration. But before I do that, in the interest of full disclosure and complete transparency, and I should have told you this yesterday when we talked, I came in today by commuter rail. Shame I did. The Virginia Railway Express. But I have to tell you a little story. First of all, one of the reasons is <clears throat> I live 55 miles away, and I mostly work at home. Um, so I'm in Washington maybe only about two days a month anyway. Um, but um, about 11 years ago, my wife and I, after we sent the last child off to college, realized we could live wherever we wanted to live. And so we had always lived in urban environments, and we thought, well, kind of wouldn't it be interesting to live in a kind of a small, semi-rural town? We've never experienced that. That could be fun. So without knowing anything about the community, we ended up sprawling our way to Fredericksburg, Virginia, down 95, and, uh, and have really enjoyed it. 
The problem is that that's, we were both working full-time then, so we had a real commuting challenge, but we knew that there was this commuter rail line that was there. We went to actually see the, the station and looked into it, looked at the schedule, and said, well, this would work for us. Well, it worked in theory, because what we discovered when we were there <clears throat> was that it's very slow, it's very expensive, it's very unreliable. And so after about six months, we, thanks to uh, HOV lane that we could use for a carpool, <coughs> we bought a new car and then um, formed the carpool and kind of never looked back. <coughs> and then when they allowed for uh, hybrids to get on, we instead traded in the other Honda for a Honda hybrid where we could get in without having to have three people in the car. So we had a carpool of two. Uh, and we did this for about, uh, in total with both cars, probably for about eight years. <laughs> now, what I discovered, the reason we did this was not just because uh, it, it was slower, but it actually made economic sense to do this. What we discovered is with two people, the amount of money we would save on VRE fares that we were paying out of our own pocket <laughs> exceeded the monthly payment that we would have to make on the hybrid if we financed it with 100%, which people were happy to do. We got a subprime car loan. And uh, so, uh, and then we had some money left over for insurance, so we got somebody to ride with us, and they chipped in for gas, and basically that covered everything. But the most important part, when you consider how much real leisure time you actually had, we ended up gaining, each of us, about an hour and a half of leisure time per day that we weren't stuck in, in a train station or in a train someplace. So uh, the, the hybrid died after, after years. Actually, it didn't really die, but, but with the EPA, uh, you, have, you have to pass a, a, an emissions inspection, and the cost of, of getting it up to standards after 180,000 miles was prohibitive. We didn't really need the hybrid anymore, so we sort of traded down to a more normal car. So uh, we still, I, I still started to drive in, uh, but I would come in sort of after rush hour, which, I, which you could do if you're really not on the schedule. But then what happened was thanks to the stimulus money, half of 95 was closed each day. So they could fill potholes and add this and add that. So I really had no choice. I'm sorry. But one of the things about the, the, the VRE that I discovered, because I actually wrote a paper on it when I was using it, is that <coughs> the, I was paying at that time about $14 a day round trip to come back and forth from Fredericksburg and calculated using their own budget that on top of that, the taxpayers were providing me with another $20 in, in daily subsidies uh, to use that. So again, we calculated that you could buy, each rider on the VRE could be, based on that, <coughs> could be given a, 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 an alternative car <coughs> and, and the state would still save money. But anyway, uh, it, it worked. I'm here and that's how I'll get home. I'm not there yet. So anyway, what I wanted to do is just talk a little bit about uh, the issue of Pick up where, where, where Randall has talked about. Randall talked about performance. What I want to talk about is is what it's costing us globally or at the federal level uh, to finance this, uh, this 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 increasingly <coughs> expensive commitment to transit. Uh, as, as Randall made clear, uh, transit, but all forms of, of of transportation get some form of subsidy from the federal level, and at the state level, and at the local level. Uh, the ones that transit gets, though, in proportion to its usage and by any other measure, are simply off the charts in comparison to other forms of surface transportation, including commercial air. 
<laughs> under current law, under the current reauthorization bill, <laughs> about 20% of, of the highway of federal surface transportation <laughs> uh, spending goes to transit. And about three-quarters of that 20% uh, comes from the Highway Trust Fund, which means motorists are subsidizing transit riders. And the other 25% approximately comes from general revenues, which means that all taxpayers are subsidizing um, uh, transit riders, which, as we'll illustrate, <coughs> are not <coughs> a, a major form of commuting in the United States. Um, if you look at it, none, despite the, the, the fact, despite what will demonstrate to be a disproportionate share, transit advocates have always argued that, gosh, if only we were funded as well as, as automobiles were. I mean, auto, for every dollar we get, <coughs> roads get $4. And so, you know, this is just not fair. But if you look at it on a per-passenger serve basis, we find that the subsidy for transit is off the charts. Using federal numbers <coughs> and updating a federal report, uh, we at the Heritage Foundation calculated that the per-passenger per thousand miles subsidy for transit today is, is about $166. This compares to $4.23 for commercial airlines, $1.50 per passenger per thousand miles for intercity buses, and a profit of a little over a dollar for automobiles. And the reason automobiles profit for, or source of profit for the federal government <laughs> is that only about 60% of the fuel taxes that you, the motorists, and the truckers <laughs> pay into the trust fund go back to roads. The rest dribbles off the bicycle paths, hiking paths, natural, national parks, and the biggest chunk of all heads off to transit. <laughs> so transit is, and motorists are actually subsidizing significantly. And this is repeated at the state level. Uh, state, state DOTs are largely funded by federal fuel taxes, and their transit programs are funded often by a share of that or from other tax revenues as well. So it's handsomely subsidized. Now, looking at it another way, uh, you know, how many people does this affect? Uh, you know, is it unfair to them, even looking at the per-passenger subsidy? What about looking, at, looking even larger? Well, again, remember, we're talking about 20% of federal surface transportation <coughs> money is going toward, toward transit. And in some states, like Maryland, it's even higher. It can be as high as 40%. Yet nationwide, less than 2% of passengers use transit, <laughs> and nationwide, less than 5% of commuters going to work each day use transit. And in fact, uh, more people carpool than, than use transit, and our colleague Alan Pazarski, who's, who's an expert in, in using census data uh, for, for transportation purposes, calculates that within one or two years of current trends continue, more people will be working at home than will be using transit. And these minus, minus shares, uh, in, in some cases, are below market shares of, of 20 years ago. <laughs> and so, at best, in, in recent years, <laughs> all we've been able to do with a very substantial investment of taxpayer money, mostly motorist money, in, in transit programs is, is to sort of stabilize ridership at a relatively low level. <laughs> and even the nationwide figures are somewhat exaggerated because most transit ridership in the United States is just concentrated in a handful of metropolitan areas. 
in fact, using FTA data, <coughs> we know that in recent years, 75% of all transit ridership in the United States takes place in seven metropolitan areas. So this raises the question of, is there even a national purpose uh, to this to justify the taxpayer dollars and the trust funds? So despite all of this, and uh, the, the record of, of lack of performance, the costs that the Wendell has documented in this paper and many others that he's done, <coughs> all evidence indicates that current congressional leadership and the White House are committed to even more transit, and more specifically to less cars and, and more transit. <coughs> now, while well, the, excuse me, the administration hasn't come out with a formal plan yet, and for that matter, neither has Congress, we have from them lots of hints about their intention in terms of the statements that have been made, speeches that have been given, administrative actions that have been made, and drafts of legislation that have submitted, been submitted. Uh, I did a review, and I think the paper has been handed out, of uh, Mr. Oberstar's uh, Surface Transportation Authorization Act, uh, which is really a draft bill. It doesn't have a bill number. It has virtually no numbers in it at all in terms of how much will be spent in these different areas. Uh, and uh, it hasn't even been reported out of full committee, hasn't been reviewed by full committee. Uh, and it is missing a, a very large number of segments. The whole transportation research segment is gone. There is no information on, on the very delicate issue of equity distribution of, of of trust fund monies between the states. So it's very incomplete. But what we have there uh, suggests, uh, as in the case of many of the statements coming out of the administration, a major transformational, if I could use that word, commitment in surface transportation toward the embrace of, of transit, as well as what is being referred to as non-motorized transportation, bicycles and walking. Uh, <coughs> now, Again, the administration doesn't have a formal plan yet. Uh, they have, they've come out with uh, the goals when they formed the partnership. There's been numerous statements, but I think we can see in looking at some of the more significant actions that have taken place over the, uh, over let's say the first year of, of Mr. LaHood's uh, management and leadership at the Department of Transportation that they are intent upon dramatically changing how Americans get around and how Americans live as well. Because one of the problems with using transit is that where transit, quote, works, it tends to only work in places that have fairly high densities. And so recognizing with the spatial pattern that exists now, uh, <laughs> if, if, if Americans are going to insist on quarter-acre lots and living in the suburbs, then transit won't work, and so therefore we're simply going to have to get Americans to stop living this way. So essentially, in terms of our lifestyles, transit is becoming sort of the tail that's wagging the dog. But anyway, just going through some of the key points uh, or key statements or, or actions that have taken place uh, in, 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 uh, in, in USDOT, we, 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 a pattern is beginning to emerge. Uh, in a May speech that was probably Mr. LaHood's coming out speech at the National Press Club, it was also the speech where he said that George Will was the only person in America who opposed his livability plan. <coughs> well, be that as it may. But more famously, uh, this is where Mr. LaHood, when asked by a reporter 
who had been listening to him talking about changing the distribution of money, says, well, aren't you really interfering using the budget and your programs to sort of interfere with how people want to get around? And Mr. LaHood responded and said, about everything we do around here is government intrusion in people's lives. And then paused and said, it is a way to coerce people out of their cars. Yeah. Now, a couple of weeks later in another interview when asked about this and to elaborate on it, he expressed surprise, even though every reporter there copied it down. We have tapes of it. It's expressed surprise. Did I say that? He turns to his aide. Did I really say that? And she says, well, yes, but you didn't really mean it. He says, yes, I probably meant lure people out of their cars. Now, I thought lure is an interesting. Anybody fish here? You know, a lure has a hook in it, right? <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I'm even worried about his, 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 the minor concession he's made. Uh, but anyway, uh, then they subsequently uh, formed to, to sort of try to make this coercion plan, this luring plan operational, and to recognize that if it's going to be truly transformational, we're not just mucking around with your house, but we're, we're going to muck around with your carbon footprint, and we're going to muck around with your, with your car and your transportation and everything else. We're going to give you a whole package deal. So a task force uh, and partnership was formed between HUD, DOT, and the EPA that they, I don't think they released anything formal yet, but in, in announcing the, the partnership, they had about six or seven points and a whole bunch of sub-points under what they were interested in or what they were going to do. And among them includes more transportation choices, which means more money for transit. Uh, and as, <coughs> and as, uh, as Randall had mentioned, focused on toward the end of his presentation, mixed-use development and transit-oriented development and safeguarding rural landscapes, ha-ha, no sprawl here, and promoting walkable neighborhoods in rural, urban, and suburban settings. So this is a fairly ambitious. So farmers can walk to each other's farms, I guess is what the, <coughs> rather than take a car, and it's probably cheaper to get them to walk than have a light rail line between the farms anyway. So... Uh, so that was one of that was these were two key things that were made fairly early on, uh, and then people, particularly the press, were wondering, well, what is his what is the livability agenda? Because everything was expressed in terms of our livability program, our, our community livability program, our transportation livability program, and livability is kind of a new word. We sort of know what it might be, but people asked him to define it. And through an aide, he released his definition to, to the reporter. And according to Mr. LaHood, and I'm quoting, livability means able to take your kids to school, go to work, see a doctor, drop by the grocery or post office, go out to dinner and a movie, and play with your kids in a park all without having to get into your car. Now, if I look at that, I say, well, one of two things can help him achieve this. We can build more grocery stores, we can build more post office, have more doctors, or we can huddle people together <laughs> like our great-grandparents were huddled together back in 1905 <laughs> when walking was really the only way people could get around uh, in, in an affordable way so that everybody's going to be there and, uh, and we won't be, have our choices will be substantially limited. Uh, we'll go to doctors that we can walk to as opposed to doctors that we really want to serve us. So anyway, this is, this is the livability agenda. And again, it's fairly clear that it's an anti-car agenda. And so more transit, more bicycle paths, more walking paths, and so on. Uh, importantly, to sort of clear the way for more transportation spending, 
he, uh, in January this year, uh, rescinded uh, FTA's objective quantifiable standards for what trans transit proposal was viable and therefore worthy of funding and which ones were not and therefore rejected. And it was a matter of quantitative measures on congestion relief. So if, if what's going to re reduce congestion, why are we spending billions and billions of dollars simply to give people a choice, something that's more expensive? Well, those were rescinded. And by the way, those, those, those quantitative measures that were in existence before, for those of you who have been following these issues, were the main reason why <coughs> Dulles Rail requests for funding was repeatedly rejected by the US DOT because they didn't pass this. And in fact, we, I did a report with, uh, with Wendell Cox on, on, on Dulles Rail, a brief one, and, and simply <coughs> quoted from their latest submission to the Federal Transportation Administration requesting money in which they said, that by you know, 2020, we will relieve traffic congestion along the corridor by 1%, but that 1% gain will last for only one year. Okay? <laughs> and they also concluded that there will be no change whatsoever on energy use, which means that there will be no change whatsoever in air pollution along the corridor. So for obvious reasons, these failed to quantify a cost-benefit test, and they were denied money. It was not until many congressmen uh, of Republicans pressured the administration into reversing that that the Dulles Rail <coughs> finally received the funding. Well, Mr. LaHood has ended all these things. Uh, there will be no standards. Uh, well, there will be standards, but there will be sort of softer standards as uh, so a new standard will consider non-transportation goals such as economic development and the environment. Now, the interesting thing about Dulles Rail is anybody who's followed it, it really wasn't a transportation program. It was a real estate deal that would, that would clearly fit under the economic development person, but, you know, the, the, the economies being developed are the, are, are the personal fortunes of the landowners along the corridor. <laughs> and I suspect that we're going to see more and more of this over time, particularly with the focus on transit-oriented development and, and the subsidies of it. Uh, in November, FTA announced that it's expanding the radius in which FTA money can be used for walking and bicycling around a transit stop from a half a mile to three miles. Now, <laughs> previously, there was some sense of notion of connectivity so that you know, you could use money, use FTA money to build bicycle racks at the transit stops, the idea that some transit riders would ride their bicycle and lock it up and go on. <coughs> and, uh, and so that, that's been changed. Anyway, a number of other things. The, the TIFI loan program it, it administratively was altered uh, so that everybody who had already submitted an application had to pull their application back and resubmit it by emphasizing for, for the award process how their proposal was going to enhance livability. And so this is interesting, done without congressional approval. So anyway, you have more and more things like this. Uh, we're running out of time. Uh, many of these things are, these notions are already embodied in, in the bill that Mr. Oberstar has provided, although there's no detail on funding, there's lots of detail on bureaucracy, and I've laid it all out in gory detail in the paper. So let me wrap it up with that, and we'll move it on to questions and answers, okay? Thanks.